Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What's up, guys? It's an exciting time of the year for UFC 251. It's going to be one hell of a card, baby, and without a doubt, people are going to be looking to get in on the action, and we have the best place for you to go. My bookie, for the kind of guy who likes to bet a little to win a lot, Try a parlay, for instance, if you like a couple of the big favorites this week. Parlays are perfect because they let you bet multiple games together for a much bigger payout. My bookie has more lines and better odds for the player than any other sports book around. And if you join right now, my bookie will match your deposit halfway all the way up to $1,000, which means if you deposit two grand right now, you'll get an extra grand in free money to play with. All you have to do is use our promo code BLV, that's capital BLV, to activate the offer. Once again, that promo code is capital BLV to activate your offer from MyBookie. Bet, win, get paid, MyBookie. Today's Friday, June 19th, 2020. Talking backlash as well as some baseball with former big league outfielders Darnell McDonald and Jason Michaels. A two-for-one special for you today on the Tick Pick interviews of the week, the Flashback Friday's interviews of the week. But before we get to those, I did want to mention... Uh, what's currently going on in Major League Baseball right now. I know on Wednesday we kind of talked about what Rob Manfred did, kind of uh, went back on his words saying that there wasn't going to be an MLB season or that he wasn't 100% sure that it was going to happen. After saying that he was 100% sure that it was going to happen like five days before, and uh, recently, in the last 48 hours, a lot more has gone down. Uh, there are reports saying that they came to a, an agreement, him, uh, Rob Manfred, and Tony Clark, the president of the Baseball Players Association, had dinner in Arizona. Uh, apparently, they came together on agreement, and then they both denied it. Uh, they had a one-on-one meeting, and apparently, uh, they just didn't understand the conversation that they were having because people, or they came out of it uh, thinking two completely different things. All I know is that today, on the on June, 19th, Friday, uh, Major League Baseball Players Association proposed a 70-game regular season schedule. This was yesterday on Thursday. Today, it was immediately rejected by Rob Manfred, the MLB commissioner, immediately rejected. And in a statement announcing the counterproposal, which included expanded playoffs in 2020 and 2021, the MLB Players Association uh, and Tony Clark said, and I quote, We believe this offer represents the basis for an agreement on resumption of play. And, of course, sources told uh, Jeff Pass, an ESPN insider for Major League Baseball, uh, that the details of this proposal were a 70-game season from July 19th through September 30th, uh, full paraded pay, fully paraded salaries, uh, spring training that would begin next Friday, so a week from today, June 26th through June 28th, There'd be expanded playoffs to 16 teams in 2020 and 2021. There'd be a minimum pool for playoff shares in 2020 based on rounds played. A $50 million bonus if full playoff is uh, staged this year. There would be a 50-50 split of incremental TV revenue for any additional postseason games in 2021. Salary advance forgiveness for all players in tiers one to three of their uh, March 26th agreement, that agreement that they came to uh, together on the original opening day data on, on Mar- uh, March 26th. Uh, opt-out clauses, full service, and salary for players who are high risk and those who kind of live with high risk individuals. There'd be a $10 million uh, incentive for social justice initiatives funded from the welfare plan, $50 million to be transferred from joint funds to the commissioner's uh, discretionary fund. Clubs would be granted permission to sell advertisement and patches on uniforms in 2020 and 2021, Um, enhanced housing allowances in spring training and regular season, universal designated hitter in 2020 and 2021, which has been a big topic of discussion changing the game, Uh, parties to collaborate on broadcast enhancements, Uh, Mutual waiver of potential grievances under the March agreement, again, March 26th. I mean, this needs to be over. And even Rob Manfred said that this needs to be over, but he's the one denying everything. He said, until I speak with owners, I can't give you a firm deadline. And following that four-hour dinner in Phoenix between Clark and Manfred, I think it was on Tuesday, MLB has emerged believing that the framework of a deal had been uh, agreed upon, like I mentioned. Uh, on Wednesday, it said the, the league's fourth offer included a 60-game schedule and fully prorated salaries, and that that's the deal that they came to an agreement on. But the union disagreed with that uh, offer, and players said Wednesday that they viewed MLB's proposed 60-game schedule as too short. Uh, and Manfred said that Clark called him on Wednesday night, said he wasn't going to present the framework until the union's eight-man executive 
committee had proposed something. He said uh, something in the 70 game range was simply impossible to agree upon given that the calendar and the public health situation and that he went ahead and made the proposal anyway. But the difference between 60 and 70 games, I mean, come on. Like, players offer 70 games, Manfred offers 60 games, 65 games. Just get it done. Get her done, like Dave Sims said on the show a few weeks ago. I, 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 I don't understand what's going on. But that being said, though, I did want to uh, get into other unrelated topics when it came to baseball. We're going to flip the switch entirely now to WWE World Wrestling Entertainment. They had their uh, backlash, annual backlash pay-per-view last Sunday, advertising the greatest match ever which was a horrible promotional point on, I think, on Vince McMahon's end. I mean, you're, you're basically putting all the pressure on the world on Randy Orton and Edge to have the greatest wrestling match ever. You know, even if they had the, one of the greatest matches ever, they weren't going to consider it the greatest match ever. I mean, they could have had one of the, the best wrestling matches from a technical standpoint in history, and people would still, like naysayers would still say, that was not the greatest wrestling match of all time, considering that there's no fans either. I mean, there's NXT performers acting as fans. They put in sound effects, you know, on SmackDown all those years that they put all those sound effects to make Roman Reigns uh, seem like he was being cheered when really he was being booed. They had fake fans uh, in the audio. So, But to their credit, Randy Orton and Edge did put on one hell of a match. I mean, Backlash delivered a match to remember. It was a segment to forget, and plenty of storyline advancement Sunday night kind of in an overall entertaining show. But my biggest takeaway from this is WWE calling Edge and Randy Orton possibly the greatest wrestling match ever in the lead-up. It just felt like a running joke for the wrestling world. I mean, the only ones laughing now, I guess, are Edge and Randy Orton. I mean, Edge, 46 years old, in his first real wrestling match in more than nine years. Again, he retired in 2011. And then Orton, who's 40 years old, going on 41. I mean, they delivered. I'm not going to lie. It wasn't the greatest match ever. But it's certainly one of the best matches this year and something both men, especially at their age, should be very proud of. Probably going to go down as the greatest wrestling match in an empty performance center, if you will. I mean, this, this classic style wrestling match with a great story, I mean, it pulled you in. Their facial expressions and overall selling was fantastic. And again, WWE led a recording of the late uh, great Howard Finkel, the uh, ring announcer, introduced the two. It kind of pumped in some crowd noise that wasn't a distraction and used kind of that new dynamic camera angles and the taped encounter. And again, it was taped, so I think a few times throughout the match, uh, they stopped and re-taped things. And then, of course, Edge tore his his uh, tricep. He's going to be out of action for six to eight months. And then the cat and mouse game, I mean, it early played into Edge's doubt until he, of course, found his confidence again in the physical affair. And Orton got bloodied midway through the match, just enough... To, to add something, add some more intrigue, more more drama. And each man gave uh, uh, the other everything that they had in an over 45-minute match. And, and that included, uh, 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 again, just a plethora of famous moves, including the Three Amigos, Kurt Angle Slam, uh, the Pedigree, Rock Bottom, Spear, RKO, Punt. I mean, most came out of a series of counters. And Edge kicked out of two RKOs, one in midair, and uh, Orton got the, the shoulder up after a couple of spears, back-to-back spears from Edge. And, of course, or Edge finally locked Orton in the, uh, what was it, the anti-venom submission, they call it. But, of course, Orton hit him with a low blow, delivered the punt for the first time in years, and got the win. And Orton ended it by telling Edge, um, who, again, tore his tricep, to go home and tell Beth Phoenix, his wife, and the kids, Uncle Randy says hi. So with Edge having won at WrestleMania... This feud probably becomes a trilogy at some point. No time soon. Again, he's out of action for the next uh, six months or so. I mean, it might take a while for fans to get there. We got Christian, though. Randy Orton versus Christian on Monday. That was another shocker. Christian, uh, he kind of they made it seem like he was cleared to compete. I don't think it, it, uh, the, it came across that way because, again, it was about a 10-second uh, match. Ric Flair came down to the ring, hit. Christian right in his Cosmonauts, and Randy Orton delivered another punt, and that was it. But I was excited to see Randy Orton versus Christian. Remember how good Randy Orton versus Christian was back in 2011 for the World Heavyweight Championship? I mean, it was a little different this time, Christian being the face, Orton being the heel. But I was expecting to see something else. I guess Ric Flair is going to be a part of Randy Orton's little faction now, a little evolution reunion. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen, though. Uh, maybe we'll see Edge and Christian versus Randy Orton and Ric Flair down the road. Who knows? I wouldn't want to see that. But uh, with that being said, uh, again, I want to give props, mad props to Randy Orton and Edge for putting on 
probably the, the match of the year. Maybe, maybe not the greatest match ever. I think CM Punk went on WWE backstage and said, and I always appreciate how CM Punk tells the truth on that show and everybody else is kissing WWE's ass. He doesn't have to because he works for Fox. He said that was not the greatest wrestling match ever by far. I've seen better Edge matches. I've seen better Orton matches. And that's the, the, the truth in both cases. But they delivered, and you got to give them credit. Randy Orton versus Edge at Backlash was definitely the greatest match of 2020 thus far. Still got six months to go, but thus far the greatest match of 2020. Definitely not the greatest match ever. So with that being said, let's get into our Flashback Friday interviews of the week. That's plural, interviews of the week. First one, former Houston Astros and Philadelphia Phillies outfielder and slugger Jason Michaels after this quick word from TickPick. playing college ball at the University of Miami. Just describe for me how your career was there, especially since you had like uh, teammates there, such as like Pat Burrell and uh, Aubrey Huff. Yeah, I actually, uh, out of high school, I went to uh, junior college first. I wasn't getting really recruited out of high school, and uh, so I was getting a lot of D2, D3 schools and some junior college interest, and uh, went to a showcase in Orlando, Florida, getting recruited by this college called drafted by the Devil Rays in 96, Cardinals in 97. You turned both those offers down. I've had a few buddies playing in college who've been drafted before, like mainly in the higher rounds as opposed to the low rounds. Some of them say that it kind of stung that they couldn't go. Others say it was an easy decision not to. What was your mindset after turning down these two offers? So I was actually drafted out of high school as well, too. So I've been drafted four of the possible five times that I could get drafted. Uh, the first one out of high school in the 49th round by the Padres. And exactly, I mean, they don't even have that round anymore now. But I thought that it gave me confidence, you know, end up going to junior college, playing there, and then get drafted after my sophomore year by the Double Rays at the time, 44th round. They didn't even offer me a contract. <laughs> so it was almost just a four, you know, a phone call, and that was it. Hey, you know, we, we, we drafted you, and that was it. And then um, actually my best year statistically in college was my junior year at Miami. You know, played right field. I just had, had a great year. And the Cardinals dropped me in the 15th round. But the price range that they were asking, I was like, no. And they were saying, take it or leave it. And I'm going, look, I'm getting a bigger scholarship. You know, fortunate enough to get a bigger scholarship than what they were offering me for Miami. And I thought that was... It was, it was disheartening because I thought I had a really good year and I was ready to take that next step. But then again, you know, I just maybe it just wasn't that time. Maybe I wasn't mentally mature enough. Physically mature, I was fine. But maybe I wasn't mentally mature enough, but I got a chance to go back to college and get my fourth year in. You know, I was fortunate to get drafted in the fourth round by the Phillies in my senior year. And, you know, mindset, I think that I, I needed all four years of college in order to be mentally mature enough to take that next step to play pro ball. 
So I did a little research. Your grandfather, if I'm not mistaken, John Michaels, played for the Red Sox back in the... Well, that's, that, I don't know what, what's going on there. I've, I've seen that, too. It was actually my dad's dad. He was a pitcher. He was like 6'5", 60. <laughs> and he was a pitcher, but he I think he played... He got to Class B at the time. Okay. I uh, never, never made it, never got a chance to make it up to the big leagues, but um, that's, that was pretty neat. I, did, I really didn't get a cheat diet when I was really young, so I really didn't get a chance to move. How much was your family an influence on you growing up in baseball? Well, big. You know, my, uh, especially my dad. My dad was my coach until I was 13. Um, he played, my dad played baseball and football growing up and then went to uh, college on a football scholarship for quarterback. And, he, you know, he, he introduced me to football. And I was I was good at football as athletic. I could catch the ball, but I just wasn't big enough. And, um, you know, playing baseball, I got, I got plenty of support. You know, luckily got plenty of support from my family. My sister was a, was an all-state softball player, played softball at the University of South Florida. And so I had a lot of support. I, I really did. What team did you grow up rooting for? Baseball-wise, uh, it was tough. You know, the only thing that was on TV was the Cubs uh, and the and the that I really saw, probably the Cubs, just because I saw them a lot. I mean, I like, I love Sean Dunstan and Andre Dawson, you know, so probably the, probably the Cubs, but I really didn't have a favorite. I just, I, I liked, I liked all sports in general, just rooted for, you know, whoever was on TV. Well, that was baseball-wise. What about football-wise? You felt the same way? Oh, big-time Buccaneer fan. Yeah, I was fortunate. I mean, Dad, Dad was, was lucky. I was lucky enough that Dad had season tickets ever since they started in 76 and uh, get a chance to go to some of those games, even though they weren't that good. Right. But it was just, it, I, I didn't care. You know, it was fun to go there, cheer, root them, root them on. Jim Tomei was inducted into the 2018 Hall of Fame this year. You were actually a teammate of his between 03 and 05 with the Phillies. Right. Describe to me how he was as a teammate and how he uh, went about his business. Oh, I can't say enough. Enough good things about Jim Tomey, just the, the, the type of person he is, obviously the player that we all see, but, you know, I get to see what a lot of fans don't get to see is, but, you know, in the locker room or in the dugout, you know, going together in that fight out there on that field, you know, playing, but uh, just a tremendous, tremendous person, uh, very nice, He's, he, he treated everybody with uh, equal amount of respect, it didn't matter if you were a Hall of Fame player or if you were a bench player, you know, or even a minor league guy, he was just he was that he was just that nice of a of a guy and that respectful. You know, it was great. My locker was two two away from him, so it was a uh, it was it was it was great to play with him and the, and the type of player and person that he was. It was you know, it was a highlight of my life for sure. Now moving on to another player who's actually set to retire after the year, Chase Utley. I don't know how long you were teammates with him, but you describe how he was as a teammate. Now that he's set to retire after the season. Yeah. So we were teammates three of my four years in Philly. And, uh, I mean, again, a, a, an old-school player. And when I say old-school player, just went out there, got hard, didn't complain, uh, kept his mouth shut, you know, talked to the veterans when, when spoken to, you know, and really tried to learn the game, uh, being a younger guy. And he was, you can't ask for any more hustle than Chase Utley or to go out there and play, whether he's hurt or not, he's, he's playing. He's not, he's not going to tell you he's hurt, he's just go out there and play. I mean, and, you know, he's, he's a great friend as well. Just, a, again, another tremendous player, and what a, what a great career at the end. I go to school out in Arizona. I'm actually from New Jersey, so big-time Yankee fan. One of my all-time favorite games that I watched was ALDS Game 2. It was Yankees-Indians when Jabba Chamberlain was getting swarmed by all those gnats. It was just like... <laughs> Consider the bug game. I know you were on that team. Yeah. Um, what was it like being in that type of atmosphere? Well, I tell you what, we had we had our Cy Young going with Fausto um, Carmona, or you know, I guess it's called Roberto Hernandez now. Yeah. But, um, he had a great year. I mean, just a great year. And for some reason, those bugs didn't really affect him as much as it did Java. And you know, Java was having a terrific year as well, and that really helped us out because I think it threw Java off his game. Uh, he wasn't able to execute the pitches like he wanted to. Uh, it just, I mean, that that really, really helped us. That really did. Out of all the teams that you've played for, which is your favorite? Well, I mean, my, my you know my favorites are all going to be my with my first was that, that's the Phillies. You know, Kim coming up through the organization and uh, uh, you know really knowing the whole system and then playing in Philly, having all my 
Indians, and uh, you know Philly was probably it was my favorite for sure. You know, and then the Indians got a chance to go to. Uh, you know, we were one game away from the World Series that right. year in '07, um, and they got a chance to play uh, for the Pirates. Great, I mean, and, and the Astros. So I mean, I got a chance to really play with a lot of guys from great organizations. Uh, I was going through kind of the transition phase there with uh, with Houston. Um, there in my last year with, you know, look at uh, 2009, 10, and 11. And then that's, I think 2011 is when we drafted Correa uh, first overall. So uh, just another, it was just a great organization. Uh, can't say enough good things about them. Who was your favorite teammate of all time during your 10-year career? Oh, Pat Burrell, for sure. For sure, Pat Burrell. You know, him and I were teammates in college. Um, he told me we got drafted the same day, spent, you know, all four of my big league seasons with him, our first big league seasons in Philly with him. We, we you know, learned a lot from him. I think he learned from me as well. You know, it was just, he was just a great teammate. What was your best career moment? Best career moment was probably uh, my walk-off home run that I hit against the Cardinals when I was playing with the Pirates. And uh, I think now it's the ninth, um, I don't know, like, like all-time best moments in Pirates history. It's, I think it's ninth. signed a minor league uh, contract with the Nationals, if I'm correct. Yeah. the mental part of the game is huge. When you say that, is it basically um, just like the mental aspects of the game, like not making mental errors, or like actually like what's going inside their brains? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean when you get to the minor leagues, and I remember when I was a coach there with the, with the Nationals, I was sitting on the bench, and I'm looking around at these guys, and I'm watching the game, and I'm like, guys, you're not going to face any better arms than the big leagues. I mean, here they are, 17 to 20-year-old guys. You know, they just started playing professional ball. There's really not much difference other than a little bit of physical maturity and then what's on your what's in your head. You know, I mean, because you have there's talent everywhere, everywhere. So what's going to separate is what it's you know on top of your shoulders, and that's what uh, it's it's you know me when I play I I played ten years in the big leagues, but one of my ten years I was a I was a starter, but so I was always mostly a, you know a fourth outfielder, pinch hitter. So if anybody knew the importance of the, of the mental preparation, the mental approach, that is it. I mean, that was me. It's me. So that's what I tried to, to help with these younger guys. I said, you know, you guys have, you know, so you have some talent. Be able to put it together and really start understanding the game. You know, there's so much information on that field, whether you're on defense or your base running or your or your hitting, that it can, it can make it a little bit easier because it's hard to hit, or it's really hard to hit. 
So here's my last question. You talked a little bit about uh, your new hitting company, the Big League Approach. So is it basically, I want to say, like kids and like club teams and stuff, and then you go up to kids who are getting scouted for college? Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm able to really to help everybody. I mean, my clientele is from any ranges from four years old to 41. <laughs> so uh, I have a, a wide range of clientele, mostly probably, uh, you know, 10 years old to probably 18 is probably the target range. But I'm able to, to explain to them and, and teach them how to use, how to have an approach, how to use the approach, you know, how it can help you. It's, you know, you know, there's, so, there's so many negative results in baseball and, um, you know, how to deal with the failures in baseball or what I call it negative results. I don't like to call them failures. And, you know, how to, uh, you know, how to, how to get an edge in this game, uh, how to play with confidence. I mean, there's just, there's so much to it that I've really been thinking about writing stuff down and really being clear with, with some of these guys because there's so many, there's so many ways, so many different ways of, of approaching hitting defense or base running or, or even just, at the, you know, the mental preparation for the next day. Um, I mean, there, there, there's so many things that, uh, that can help make it a little bit easier for you, even though it's, it's really hard to hit. <laughs> To it, I know you t said a little while ago that you kind of stopped watching after the Cubs were eliminated, but the Boston Red Sox won the 2018 World Series. They creamed the Yankees, creamed the Astros, took care of the Dodgers. What do you think made the Red Sox team so successful this year in 2018? Uh, number one, really good players. Um, really, really good players. You know, they played together, you know, listened to, you know, even the press conferences after the game. Really tell that they were united and playing together, and you know those are the things that allow you to win championships. And so, kind of, they had a dream season. Obviously, I mean, they set a record and uh, a franchise record in wins. So, it was definitely uh, meant to be for them. Ever since you retired in 2013, you've worked with the uh, Cubs as like the mental skills coordinator. Explain your role with the Cubs being the mental scores. Uh, mental skills coordinator. Um, yes, yeah, so second year doing program. Uh, myself, along with uh, Josh Lee Freck and John Baker, Ray Fuentes, um, and David DeSilva came on this year. Um, together, we really is about, you know, for me, I'm going I'm to rewind back a little bit because. When I played, I didn't do really any mental skills training. That's probably the one thing that if I could go back and do anything over again, it'd be uh, that understanding that the mental side of the game is a skill you can develop like all the other skills uh, that we work on. And so that's uh, really why I'm passionate about the, the mental side of the game. Because at the end of the day, understand that that's the separator to be, you know, be able to execute at the highest level and do it uh, consistently. And so my role was going around. I started going at the lower levels and go around to our teams and meet with players and just get to know them. Uh, I'll be a resource for the mental side of the game for them. Obviously, you started that in 2013. You were part of that 2016 World Series wrong. Tell me a little about about the atmosphere from your experience during that 2016 World Series wrong, given it was a 108-year drought. The atmosphere was, uh, I mean, if you can imagine what 108 years of not winning a World Series and kind of like the Red Sox this year having a... Uh, it was a storybook season from start to finish. I remember, you know, from spring training to the end of the season, it was pretty much the same vibe the whole year. And, uh, you know, obviously the way, you know, the game, the World Series was won, Game 7, uh, being an unbelievable game, the whole 
Uh, World Series being, you know, unbelievable. It was, I don't think you could write a, uh, a script better than how, how it went. And uh, I, I still watch that, that game seven. There's so many uh, great things that, that happened, but to be able to be a part of the, the parade and see how happy, I've never seen that many uh, people, happy people together. It was, it was one of the most unbelievable things I've ever seen to see people lined up uh, for miles, miles and miles to uh, celebrate the, the Cubs World Series was, was pretty special. So, um, you know, I'm just blessed to be able to be a part of that experience. Yeah, definitely, like you said, people lining up all the way down blocks and blocks. Probably one of the best baseball games I've ever witnessed was Game 7 of that World Series. So you've pl- you've played for the Cubs, Yankees, Red Sox, Reds. In your entire career, who was your uh, favorite organization to play for? <laughs> uh, I'm laughing because, you know, a lot of people, they ask that question. And for me, it's no doubt the Red Sox. Um, the Red Sox is kind of where I was able to become a, a big leaguer. You know, it gave me an opportunity and to be a part of something, you know, extremely special. Um, again, so much history of, of guys that have put on that uniform and, you know, games that have been played in that stadium. And so it's for me, it was like everything that I dreamed of as a kid, you know, playing wiffle ball in the backyard. Um, imagine being in, you know, that type of situation and atmosphere. And so, and obviously the great people there also. There's so many great people, teammates, and people that, you know, work at the stadium and that are part of that organization that just, uh, you know, made it really special for myself and my family. So, uh, I love Boston, too. Boston's awesome. So, Red Sox were your favorite team you ever played for. Who was your favorite teammate? Tough, 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 tough question. Yeah. Uh, that's another thing that really special about my career is just the, the amount of unbelievable players that I got to watch play the game. And when I say, you know, Hall of Fame, Hall of Famers, David Ortiz, Joya, Adrian Beltre, and so the list goes on. If you're a Red Sox fan, you know all the great players they had over there. Um, 2010 was my first year there. Uh, you know, we didn't obviously didn't win, but it felt it felt uh, you know that was one of the most special teams that I was a part of, and being able to hang out. It wasn't even you know it, what I really miss is just hanging out with with the guys that camaraderie. That's another thing that I tell people. That's 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 what it's all about, man. Those those relationships. And so can't answer your question. Can't answer your question because <laughs> there's too many and. It's uh, so so awesome that they would be a part of. Uh, you know, I, I played with Derek Jeter for for about four days, but that's, right. you know, Derek, Derek Jeter. This guy is the epitome of just consistency, and that's what it takes to be a major league player. And he did it at that level for 20 years, and you see why when you see him um, every day and what he brings. It's you're not surprised about the success that he um, that he had because he's probably the most consistent player I've I've ever seen as far as routine everything he does and why and it's you can see it by the way he plays the game as well. I tell little kids the the same story all the time about this Derek Jeter. He ran the same way to first base for 20 years. And he did it just how they teach you in Little League. Ran, hit the front of the bag, look to the right, see if there's an overthrow. It's a lost start in the game uh, nowadays. But Derek Jeter did it for 20 years. You mentioned those three guys, Ortiz, Pedroia, Jeter. Those are actually my next three questions. Do you have any like clubhouse stories or any like personal cool stories about first Big Poppy David Ortiz? <laughs> special person, the energy that he brings, and he brings it, you know, every day. Pedroia, same way. Pedroia is going to be at the field at like 11 o'clock. He's going to be fully dressed in his uniform, 
with his wrist taped, everything, at like 6 o'clock, walking around, locked in, telling everyone, you know, how many lasers he's going to hit. And, uh, you know, again, you know, I talk about that, that consistency. All those guys were extremely consistent with their attitude and their energy that they brought um, to the field every day. And that's something that rubbed off on not only myself, but everybody. And, you know, like I said, that's when I went to Boston, that's when I really felt like a big leaguer because I'm watching these, these big leaguers and just watching what they do and learning. Reds, Red Sox, Yankees, Cubs, what was the best moment of your entire career? And tell me to... Tough, these are tough questions because it's, it's tough to pick out <laughs> this one moment. Like, right. You know, obviously, I got to say, my first day with Boston, uh, I couldn't draw that up um, any better from the time I got called up to, you know, get a police escort to the stadium at 6 o'clock right before the game and just put my uniform on and strapping it on. And next thing you know, Tito's pinch hitting. So, um, and then to be able to, you know, hit the home run and then come up, bases loaded, two outs, bottom of the ninth, and hit the walk-off, that's, it's pretty tough to top that. Uh, but I think another one that ranks right up there with me was San Francisco hitting a home run for a kid that I met, um, you know, before the game that, uh, unfortunately, he passed away. But he... Um, met him before the game and he, he I was given a wristband uh, from you know Dave, Mes- Dave Mesmer who introduced me to him and to be able to hit that home run I remember they gave me the wristband they said you know you're gonna hit a home run today of course I was like yeah 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 all right you know, he's a Madison Bumgarner but I was like yeah <laughs> but, you know sure enough hit a home run one nothing and Running around the bases was, uh, it was like, a, you know, it's like a dream. But, uh, I, you know, I kind of go on and on. There's so many things that, you know, so many moments that I will always look back on and never forget, you know, those moments I, that I uh, really cherish. That's obviously an awesome moment. Should be the best moment of your career. Let's get into a little bit about today's game, today's topics. 48 hours ago, Shohei Otani won the American League Rookie of the Year over Miguel Andahar and Glaber Torres. As a Yankee fan, I feel a little bit discredited because Miguel Andahar played 50-plus more games than Shohei Otani. I know he's the two-way player and all, but who do you think personally should have won the American League Rookie of the Year, Shohei Otani or Miguel Andahar? Definitely value. You know, you got to be out there. you got to be out there. Um, numbers, you know, and... Yankees, your, your, your guy, definitely had the numbers. Also, I think, you know, Otani, for what he did, that's something that's never been done, you know, really, at that level. I don't know how many games how many games did he win as a pitcher. Right. Uh, I know his se- his season was obviously short, and he pitched like two or three months. I think he had seven wins. Yeah, so, that, you know, if, for me, it could have it gone either way, man. I, I'm satisfied with either, either, either one because those are – yeah, they're both deserving of the award, I think. NL Rookie of the Year, Acuna Jr. took it. Juan Soto obviously could have taken it. He came in second. Who do you, who would you say in the NL, Acuna Jr. or Juan Soto? Yeah, Acuna, Matata, man. Acuna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, to be able to come up and do what he did, and they went to the playoffs, man. That's that's pretty special. That kid's gonna be, uh, you know, really special for a long time. That was, that was really impressive. And, you know, him and uh, Ozzy put the team on their back. They got the Braves back to brave baseball, so to speak. Mike Trout, Jose Ramirez, Mookie Betts, three finalists for the AL MVP. J.D. Martinez ended up winning two silver sluggers in the same season as a DH and a right fielder. Uh, a lot of people feel like J.D. Martinez kind of got screwed out of the MVP race given the analytics around Mike Trout. Um, Mike Trout didn't really play any two important games this year considering the Angels were out of it pretty early. Do you think J.D. Martinez should have been a can- an MVP candidate over Mike Trout? Absolutely. I mean, you got to be at least a candidate. You know what I'm saying? That's at least. Right. At least. And, um, you know, I just, Mookie and J.D. Martinez. For me, like the MVP, like you got to win. You know, it's about winning and, um, you know, just like the rookie of the year and, you know, pretty much all, 
all the awards. I think you got to put all these things together, and winning is part of it. Helping your team win games, obviously it's a team game. Um, for JD Martinez not to be a candidate is is crazy, man. Um, you know, for me, Mookie, what he did at the plate and uh, in the field, he'd be my my winner. But yeah, JD Martinez should be he should be a candidate for every award there is. Yeah, and considering, I don't think the Red Sox were that much of a home run hitting team this year. Obviously, this year, Mookie Betts had a career year, but JD, bringing in J.D. Martinez for the price that they brought him in completely changed the atmosphere up in Boston. So I think he should have at least been considered over a guy like Mike Trout, who is the best player in baseball, but at the same time, didn't really play too many important games this year. Without a doubt. So you're a Cubs guy. Uh, reports have been swirling around saying that the Cubs are considering trading Chris Bryant this offseason, basically just saying anybody's not untouchable. Do you think it's even possible that the Cubs consider trading Chris Bryant this offseason? Well, I think nothing is ever impossible, you know, but I'd be, be really sad to see him go anywhere else. Great player and brings a lot to, to any team. Um, at the end of the day, like for everyone, coaches, managers, players, it's all, you know, it's business. You know, it's part of the mental skills and helping even these younger players understand this at a young age because it was tough for me to understand that coming from high school. Yeah, man, this is business. Now people do business, and that's why I say nothing's ever impossible. Again, love Chris. He's another one that's going to be, uh, you know, a game changer for you. Uh, years to come, and another one, that, another guy that's uh, pretty consistent, obviously. Let's say they don't trade Chris Bryant. They end up end up keeping guys like Bryant Rizzo, the core of their team, basically the faces of their franchise. Given that Chris Bryant and Bryce Harper grew up together, same high school in Nevada, do you think it's possible the Cubs go after Bryce Harper this offseason, considering they want to win next year? <laughs> uh, like I just said, man, nothing, nothing is. Nothing's impossible. Everything is everything's possible. I wouldn't put anything past, um, you know, Theo and the management. It's one thing that I love about Theo is that he's extremely competitive and he wants to win. And as a player and as a staff member, like that's, that's the type of organization that I want to be a part of. Is organization that are trying to win year in and year out. Um, you know, I I think we we have. The, the the guys the guys that were there this year were you know the team without any additions you know because can win a World Series so you know any addition yeah that'd be be nice but I think the the Cubs have a, a team now that they can win get guys healthy and uh, guys play the way that we know they can play. Um, you know, I think that's possible. And then this question is along the same lines. What do you think the Cubs need to do in order to really be a contender next year? Win a couple more games. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Man, it's well, because this this year is it's 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 pretty it's that's amazing also considering uh, guys being out and the injuries and be able to win uh, ninety five games. That's that's pretty good. You know, and so you, you win a World Series, it's about just getting, you know, get to the playoffs, you get to the playoffs, anything can happen. It's kind of like the, the NCAA team, teams, teams are uh, hot at the right time. You know, you, you got a chance. There's a little luck that, you know, is involved in that. And, you know, this, this past year didn't have really any luck. And despite that, still was able to do, um, you know what they did so I don't think it's uh you know there's any like big major things that need to happen just bring you know bring that, that those good vibes back and and win a couple more games and right there we're speaking about the, the Cubs winning another World Series which I hope they can do considering the Red Sox since they broke their curse have won four it'd be nice to see the Cubs <laughs> won a couple more championships uh I got two more questions before I let you go the First being, you're a yoga instructor. Tell me a little bit about your yoga company since I've had a really tough time trying to pronounce it on LinkedIn. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about uh, that. Uh, well, I'm a, 
I'll tell you right now. So I want you to say Sayaya. Sayaya? Say Sayaya. Sayaya? Yep, say it two more times. Sayaya, Sayaya. Okay, so that's <laughs> it right there. Nice. You got it. And <laughs> what that means is self-study. And so, um, was, you know, right around the time that my career was in, I started doing a little yoga uh, towards the end of my career, more as a um, just a, a, a supplement to the workouts I was, the other workouts, workouts I was doing, and to get a little flexibility. And then, you know, I retired and started getting a little deeper in my practice, and um, you know, just was like going through really tough times in my life, and it was. It, for that, the learning more about yoga and meditation and, uh, you know, doing these practices helped really change, change my life and transition into not being a baseball player anymore and, you know, not having, you know, that, that competition that I was so used to having. I know it's really tough for... I don't think people realize how tough it is when the game, when you're not playing anymore. This is something that you've been doing all your life. So, um, you know, I also started to understand as I got deeper in my practice of how this translated to baseball. And, you know, you have coaches that are growing up and they're always saying, okay, you know, you need to focus, you need to concentrate. Talk about playing the game one pitch at a time, but we never really talk about how you practice those things and so I start to understand how doing these practices is a way to practice playing a game pitch to pitch be in the moment be aware of your body all these things that are going to help you make adjustments in game and kind of coach yourself and um, you know so that's another why I'm passionate about the, the yoga and meditation and, and teaching and teaching guys um, you know, different techniques that they can that they can use and incorporate into their routine. And so, um, you know, part of that Satyaya yoga brand company, um, you know, we're getting ready to come out with some apparel. And you got to stay tuned. Like, really stay tuned. Like, really <laughs> soon. Like, really, really soon, okay? I'm getting ready to be 40 Saturday. There you like go. That that'd be a great time to just bring everything together, right? So you gotta stay tuned. But these clothes are just you know, little things that um you know, I'm a big fan of hats. I love hats and um, you know, some different T shirts and different different things, mementos, reminders to stay present. Enjoy the moment. Great, great things happen in the moment. And um, so look out for the, the Satyaya, the gear coming soon, okay? Oh, I'm sure I'm sure to get a Satyaya t-shirt for sure. That's what I'm talking about. Maybe even a hat. So last question before I let you go. May 6th, 2012, Red Sox, Orioles, top of the 17th inning, Bobby Valentine calls you in to pitch. Tell me about your experience on the mound that day, regardless of what the result was. It looks here you gave up a three-run home run to Adam Jones. But how was that experience uh, being on the mound for the first time in your career? Nerve-wracking. <laughs> Nerve-wracking because, you know, it's different. I've pitched before that, never blow out a game, but to be able to pitch, come in, a major pitch in a major league baseball game, but the score tied, tied up. Um... It, it, to put it this way, I, def, I saw how that you know it's not easy throwing a strike number one, and you see the fans and you know people are like, come on man, why can't you just throw a strike? Well, it's not easy. And then what else isn't easy is knowing you have to throw a strike when you're too old to a big league hitter, and you know you got a guy like Adam Jones in the box. It's kind of that's that's pretty that's pretty scary. I'm like, man, you know, this guy, he might kill me with this baseball. <laughs> but anyway, it was, it was, uh, 
all in all, it was a really fun experience to be able to say that um, I pitched in a tie ball game in the big leagues. It's funny because a lot of our younger players that I work with, especially from uh, you know like the Dominican Republic, the Latin guys, that's that's the I think that's the one thing that they re- remember about my career. It's like, oh, you pitched. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I played a little bit too, but right. <laughs> yeah, pitched. And I think the 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 topper of the story is so I, I got the loss, you know, I, I got the loss, and I come up to bat in the bottom of half of the inning, and I end the game grounding into a double play off of their pitcher, Chris Davis, who was pitching. It was pretty nasty. He struck out Adrian Gonzalez on three pitches. That guy hit. hit. He was he was batting right right in front of me that game. That's it. Right. man. Just don't strike out. Right. That's another reason why the mental game is so important. You know, I didn't strike out, but I grounded into a double play to end the game. You know. First, you know, then I got Johnny Miller, reporter, in my face. First question, I forget what he asked me, but I love Johnny Miller because he always asks questions that everyone wants to ask, but right. they don't. So that was Johnny Miller. So that was my day, my eventful day at Fenway. What did you say, May 6th? May 6th, 2012. May 6th, 2012. Wow. Thanks for reminding me about that. <laughs> I had it. How, how was it like playing for uh, Bobby Valentine for that one year, or half a season, or however how long it was? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's just say that uh, Timmy memories from that season. I honestly forgot he was even their manager. That's good, because I tell, I tell my kids, we don't talk about <laughs> we don't, we don't say We don't say that name in our house now I'm playing. It was a it was an interesting experience. Bobby was just come from Japan, and so he brought a lot of those, um, you know, so a lot of the things that they did over there. He brought to uh, over here back to the states to the, the Boston Red Sox. So it was interesting. But I know that the following year the Red Sox won the World Series, right? Correct. Yeah, 2013. Oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's cool, man. Great questions. I'm so bummed. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Aw, oh, dude. She's probably gonna break up with you. She's definitely gonna break up with me. Should've used tick pick. Wait, what'd you say? Tick pick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, tick pick. I thought you said tick pick. No hidden fees. Download today. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.